say something, I suppose, like happy or blessed epiphany. Um, Epiphany, along with uh, Pentecost and Easter, was really one of the three main uh, feasts of the church year as the church stopped to uh, both recognize and ponder and think through the mystery of the Incarnation. Uh, One branch of the church tends to celebrate it around Jesus' baptism and him becoming public. Another branch of the church uh, tends to uh, celebrate it more around uh, his birth. Uh, But either way, the church, for as long as there's been a church, has taken a day like today to set aside to just remember and be grateful for and to ponder uh, the mysteries of God becoming incarnate uh, in his son. Now, this, of course, is what the, I, I'm going to, I haven't done this yet. I'm going to do it. Somebody remind me to do this, but I've got to figure out how it is exactly these le- lectionary readings uh, came to be. Uh, maybe Ellis or somebody else in the room knows they can tell you later. But uh, these readings this morning, especially, are definitely kind of striving to tell us a story. Um, they are striving to help us not just think about epiphany in sort of a religious sense, but to enter the story that the epiphany tells. Because the epiphany doesn't come out of the blue. Uh, I used to live in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and uh, right there in Virginia Beach is one of the largest naval air stations in the world. It was like a daily air show. And I loved it. I mean, just literally every day you'd see F-14s up in the sky doing all kinds of crazy things. But one day I was driving down towards the oceanfront where we lived, And literally, it looked like it came over the top of the trees. I I swear it was going to come through my windshield. It was so low. This guy had to be flying below legal limits. And just literally right off in front of the trees, he just appears over this freeway heading down to the beach. Well, the epiphany doesn't happen like that. (laughs) The epiphany doesn't come out of the blue. It arises precisely within a context. It arises precisely in a story that the, uh, the prophet Isaiah even was trying to tell us. Behold, there is something new happening here. Now, anybody who's been a Christian longer than about five days has heard a church program uh, be marketed as, behold, I'm doing something new, right? (laughs) I mean, right? Uh, You're going to get a new building, and so somebody pulls out this scripture, behold, can't you see I'm doing a new thing? Or, you know, we're going to start a women's ministry. Behold, can't you see the Lord's doing it right? Am I the only one who's just... Okay, I mean, we can just sort of playfully say that this poor scripture has been bludgeoned and abused for a long time. But, but it actually had a meaning. And its meaning was something very radical and, um, you know, mind-boggling, literally mind-boggling. I mean, people could not get their minds wrapped around it. That God was doing something new that set aside everything the Jewish people thought that it meant to be faithfully Jewish. So, for instance, when we, when we think of the life of Jesus, when he comes along and sets aside the law, how do you set aside the law and be Jewish? What the heck does Jesus mean when he says, everybody who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a smart carpenter who built his house on the rock? So you know, the way we tend to hear that 2,000 years down the track, and I'm not saying this is the wrong way to hear it, but the way we tend to hear it is if you hear my words and do them. So we put the accent on do them. But I can almost guarantee you that the first hearers of Jesus heard it this way. Everybody who hears my words 
they would have all thought, who are you? What are your words? We're people of the law. We obey the law. We're a people of the law and the prophets. And so when Jesus does these amazing things, like if you hear my words and put them into practice, when he turns over the tables of the money changers and drives people out of the temple and basically says, I'm the one who forgives sins, Jesus is calling into question everything the Jews knew about being Jewish. He was setting aside the law. He was setting aside the sacrificial system. He was actually setting aside the temple. How do you set aside the temple, the place where God himself resides? Because in this new, radical, amazing thing that God was doing, God was making himself present and manifest and interacting with humanity now in the person of Jesus. So this is the big radical story that, that the, the Isaiah and that Peter's wrestling with as he goes to, is told to go to Cornelius' house in a way that he can't really understand. And this is what's happening when you get to the baptism of Jesus and the preaching of John at the Jordan. This is all unfolding, and it's stunning. It, 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 um, we tend to think of it today, and this is not a wrong way to think of it, but we tend to think of it today sort of about us, and I don't mean in a bad sort of sinfully selfish way. What I mean to say is we tend to, um, in personalizing it appropriately, we tend to particularize it to our sin as if all that's really going on in this story is the forgiveness of our sin. But you have to ask yourself, sin doesn't appear out of the blue like an episode. Sin appears in a story. Actually, you might say that sin has no meaning apart from this story. Because the basic idea for sin is to uh, miss the mark or to go your own way or to choose your own path or to transgress, which is to move away from something that's uh, real or something like a, a bullseye, something that God's up to. Well, without the what God's up to, without this new thing, without this announcement of the gospel of the kingdom, there is no really sense of sin. You're just left with, well, whatever somebody might think is right. But what's happening in this movement in Isaiah is that there's a movement now from a servant nation. Uh, the story, I mean, if we were to go back to the garden, the story is really something like God created humankind. He created Adam and Eve, and he said to them, come be my cooperative friends. Come be my partners in this new creation. And I'll be with you, and you'll be my cooperative friends. You'll live constant lives of creative goodness. I'll fill you with my presence, and you'll be good for the whole earth. Well, of course, you know the story. It goes wrong. And so God raises up Israel, who was a servant nation. Kind of the best way to think about Israel is a cosmic fire department. They were God's first responders. When everything went wrong, God had created a people who could heal and bless and save and be a light and call people back to what was right. Well, again, you know the story. That goes wrong. It goes wrong more than once. It, if you read the book of Judge, uh, yeah, Judges, it goes wrong episodically. And, you know, up these big ups and downs with the nation of Israel. And it's into that story that Jesus comes. And Isaiah just says, this is going to happen. So if, if you've uh, still got your bulletins open to the passage, when the very first word where Isaiah says, here. I mean, the, the Greek, uh, the, the word for, uh, that we get English epiphany comes from the Greek word that means to make manifest or to cause to appear. And so when, when Isaiah says, here, 
He's saying, look, this is the epiphany. This is what's now appearing to us and being made manifest to us, that God is going to raise up a servant son. So now the story is evolving from a servant people to a servant son. And God's gonna uphold this son. He's his chosen one. He's somebody in whom he delights and he's gonna put his spirit on them. Uh, it's, it's not an accident that we start every morning uh, when we gather together here to worship with asking for the Lord's personal presence. Because there is no human life in the way God intended it. There's no husbanding or wifing or parenting or employing or employering. There is no human life. There is no Christian worship that works well apart from personal presence. And not personal presence just as a doctrine. I'm not, I don't mean like omnipresent, like God's everywhere present. No, I'm talking about an epiphany, a manifest, an obvious, I know that God's in my life and that he's working in my life. That's fundamental not only to being human, but it's of course fundamental to being Christian. And this is what God is promising, that I will be with you. And that this is key to any kind of human endeavor. What went wrong in the garden was not simply eating whatever they ate. It, what, what really went wrong at the end of the day was the banishment. It was being away from the personal presence of God. That's what fundamentally went wrong, and then the world goes to pot. Well, part of restoration, part of reconciliation, part of regeneration, part of being born again, you know, in that kind of language, part of being born again is the knowledge, the personal knowledge of a new and different kind of life in me through Christ. And this is what Isaiah is promising will be shown in this son. Now look at the amazing characteristics of this son. He's not gonna shout or cry out. He's not gonna raise his voice. That is to say, he'll live this sort of unostentatious, not you know, sort of advertising himself kind of life. He's not gonna shout or raise his voice. He's not gonna be domineering or aggressive or threatening. This is kind of a scary thought, actually. I mean, you kind of read that and go, whew, but it's actually a little bit of a scary thought to think that. In the main, in the plain, for most of the time, God tends to deal with us according to our inclinations. That is to say, if you don't want much to do with God, it's not likely that he's gonna shout you down. I mean, there's the occasional Moses, there's the occasional Apostle Paul, and certainly we have to factor in just overall grace here. But especially, I would think, for people who call themselves Christians, God tends to deal with us according to our inclinations. This is why when Jesus recognizes faith, like when he saw the centurion, this is why he said, oh my gosh, I've never seen such faith like this in all of Israel. Because he saw in that centurion an inclination towards him. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, precise doctrine here. I mean, I'm happy to grant that even inclination comes from grace, you know, all that stuff. I'm talking about just practically speaking, God is not to typically wanting to shout us out, but just the little bit of opening on our own part allows him to say, yeah, I, yes, let's get together here. I mean, C.S. Lewis put it this way famously. Lewis said there's only two kinds of people on the earth. Uh, those who say yes to God or those who in the end, God says yes to them. Like, okay, you don't want anything to do with me? I've created a place for you in the cosmos. H-E double toothpicks. 
It's there's a place for you, right? If you don't want anything to do with me, okay. But to anybody who says yes to God, just has a little bit of inclination, God will come to them. This is what it means when he says a bruised reed he will not break. Somebody who's bruised and bent over and no longer in the shape that a human being should be in. Bruised, broken, beat up, addicted, whatever they might be. If you got this little bit of inclination, God's not going to um, break you. A smoldering wick, somebody who's barely making it, God's not going to snuff out. Meaning the good news of lighting back for loved ones, of of praying, God, let me be a light in someone's life or God be a light in someone's life. The good news of that is God does not brush aside the bruised and the hurt. He doesn't disregard the small and the insignificant, but he accepts them and takes them. And then this, this servant son, Isaiah tells us, is going to establish justice on the earth. A justice simply means uh, the coming together of a just order. And I know justice is a little scary for people, but I don't know what I was doing. Maybe it was Friday night. Um, sometime uh, in the last couple of days, I was, you know, as men do, clicking around the TV. And I came upon a, a history channel thing or a biography channel thing or something. And I had forgotten all about this story. Remember, it was like 10 years ago. There was some really pretty British model. She was, you know, like a makeup model, you know, really famous for her face. And some wacko member threw acid on her. Do you remember that story like 10 years ago? And, and as the, the, it went on, I think it was biography, because it went on to tell how, you know, what's happened to her life since then. And, and I remember she, her, her constant cry was, why? Why would anyone do this to me? You see, unless you've been a victim of injustice, it's hard to see how the coming of justice is beautiful. The coming of justice is just not, oh, no, God's going to realize I actually inhaled as a teenager. You know, unlike Clinton, I actually inhaled. You know, like, oh, no, you know, like God's going to find that out and I'm going to be in big trouble. We, you know, we, that's kind of the way we think of justice. But justice is not like, you know, a cowering from God who's going to smack your hand. It's no, God's going to make things right. And if your face has been disfigured by life, and it was unfair, and you've been brutalized and bent over, and um, you're a, a broken or bruised reed, or you feel like your life's to be about snuffed out, when God finally appears, and the kingdom is consummated, and the story is finally told, justice will be done. There will be a right ordering of things. And that'll have to do with food, and clothing, and water, and healing, and anything you can think of that's wrong in the cosmos. God raised up humankind to partner with him. It went bad. He rose up Israel to fix it. It went bad, and he sent now the servant son. And in this servant son, and in his coming at his baptism, this started. That, this launch, the epiphany, the incarnation of Christ, launches the last part of this big story. And so Jesus goes down to the river to be baptized by John. And this is something that the Christian church has celebrated because it's sort of making Jesus public. And Jesus just basically echoes this when he says, look, anybody who wants to come to me, anybody who longs for my personal presence, you'll get it. This is what John meant when he said, you know, I'm baptizing you here with water. 
And it was kind of a baptism of repentance. I mean, John's message was repent. You know, turn your life around. I love the way the message has it, that John preached a message of total life change. And that's what repent means. It doesn't just mean to change your thinking about something, but as your thinking changes, your whole life changes. This is what it means to turn and go a new direction. But John says, but not this Jesus, not the servant son that Isaiah talked about. The servant son that Isaiah talked about is gonna go way beyond this. I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals because this servant son is gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's gonna give you God's personal presence so that your life then will radiate the healing, bringing justice, helping, um, picking, picking up, you know, bent over bruised reeds, blowing a little oxygen on a fire that is about to go out. You're now gonna be those kinds of people and it's gonna be done through the real presence, the personal presence of Christ in your life. That's the big story. And it comes with this amazing sort of Trinitarian confirmation. There's only two places in all the New Testament where you see the Trinity sort of visibly, manifestly, epiphany, present, and one is here at Jesus' baptism, where the Son is in the Jordan being baptized. The Holy Spirit falls upon him, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, you are my Son, whom I love, whom I've chosen, just echoing everything that Isaiah said would happen. You're my beloved son. Here, here he is. Remember the words of Isaiah. Here, here he is. He's my chosen one. I love him. And with you, I am fully pleased. Now let's take a brief pause here for a lesson in spiritual formation. Christian life and Christian ministry works best when it comes from a previously existing rest. When it comes from a in terms of sequence, when it comes from a previously existing sense of grace. Because when one is not working from rest, when one is not working from grace, you end up working for those things and you end up just sort of trying to manage your appearance in your life and that's how people get into manipulating and lying and covering up and all that because they're not working from an essential grace. But before Jesus had ever done anything, before he'd said a word in public, before he'd done any teaching or done any great works, before Jesus had done anything in public, his father said to him, I love you and I am well pleased with you. And it's out of that that Jesus operated. He didn't operate to get that. He didn't operate to get God's favor. He didn't operate to get God's choosing. He didn't operate to get God's approval. Out of God's approval and the essential rest that it brought to his deepest inner being, the centeredness, the peacefulness. Out of that, he could be the kind of person who would not break a bruised reed. But you've all known supervisors at work who didn't give a rat's behind about a bruised reed and were willing to do anything it took to give a good report to the person that was above them in the hierarchy. They'd snuff out any wick. They'd break any bent over flower in an effort to do what it took to look good. Well, those are people who are not operating from a previously existing, deeply experienced peace and grace and knowledge of God's love. Well, Jesus was. And this is what unfolds as the servant son comes on the earth and begins to express the will of God. 
Now, the last thing to say about these readings, though, is that when God really does do a new thing, that's, you know, not the building of a new wing on the building or something, when God really does do a new thing, it's not easy to get. And that's what the passage in Acts is telling us. That Peter struggled. It just, it just made no sense to him that he could actually go to Cornelius' house. That it was just wrong to go actually be a part of somebody or something that was not a part of the Jewish people. And so there's a learning process here. And that's why you have on your chair this little thing about spiritual formation. And you don't have to look at it right now, but you take it home with you. Um, I served on a task force with um, uh, a lot of people who are leaders in the spiritual formation movement. And we came up with that just as a way of trying to say, okay, what is spiritual formation? What are we talking about here? And that helps you see it. It helps you connect this previously existing grace all the way through your life to what it is that God is doing when he announces this new thing. Before Epiphany, it had been about 400 years before the people of Israel had heard from God. 400 years before there had been, or since there had been an acknowledged prophet. And so the whole thing from Isaiah begins to unfold. This comes into public and is baptized And it begins to unfold through his words and works. What the people experienced was a fresh presence, the personal presence of God. And in their minds, God started going from the lawgiver. Jesus never referred to him as lawgiver. How did Jesus always refer to God? My father. Remember that guy who spoke at my baptism? My orientation is to him, not to the law. And so they began to get this fresh presence of God, a new vision of what could be. As they heard Jesus' words, you know, John's were repent. Jesus' were come follow me. I'm, I'm, I'm in this alignment with the Father. Come follow me. There'll be this renewed hope. Uh, Jesus is now including sinners. Peter's getting the message that sinners like you and I can be included in this. But more than anything, they begin to get the message that in this new thing God is doing, they can relax, they're safe, no more need for image control. They can just act from a previously existing love and grace from God. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www dot myholytrinitychurch dot com